Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hello and welcome fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me again as we travel through space and time. Thanks, first of all, to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. If you don't know about it, uh, here's how it works. Patreon is laid out on a subscription model, uh, so if you join up and become a member, you help support the rest of my podcast. Uh, You get access to extra rewards, exclusive content. There's a weekly vodcast, which I film here at Home in Stirling, uh, with the help of Paul down in London. Uh, together we run the occasional competition and we give members a chance to suggest topics for a special podcast episode every now and again. So, lots going on uh, and it's a great little community, getting larger all the time. To join, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Okay, it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine. We're off to meet the gods in the latest episode of my love letter to the world. Sound recorder, microphone, action! A beginning and an end, an alpha and an omega. He was able to start the world and he was able to finish the world. Stepping outside the map with Europe at its heart, a vast landmass isolated by the world's highest mountains and dense jungles, a civilization set apart, laying its own foundations. Large, sophisticated cities, trade, influence, empire. A unique culture of immense power and duration. At its heart, guiding their way of life, was Shiva, the lord of destruction and reproduction. Endeavouring to understand history in order to try and illuminate the future. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we watched as the wealth and prosperity from two cash crops were instrumental in helping to power Western civilization. Where in the world's history are we this week? Hi Paul. Yes, we saw money pouring into Greece and the Greek islands uh, on the back of trade in olive oil and grapes. And with it the shift westward of power and development. But in a history of the world, it's important to remember that the flowering of civilization happened spontaneously all across the globe in different places at different times. And this week, we're travelling to India to see the moment when Shiva emerged as a central figure in the world's oldest surviving religion. This is one of the really pleasing aspects after the the love letter to the British Isles, this look out at the wider world, I just find endlessly exciting. 
because of its scope. And I remember my wife, Trudy, and I, we were, we were watching something on a screen somewhere a couple of years ago, and it was of a historical bent. I can't remember what the subject was, but this, the significant thing was Trudy turned to me at one point. It was something to, related to Britain. And Trudy turned to me and said, what was happening in the rest of the world at that point? And I thought, it's a key question, that, isn't it? You know, you think about things like, you know, we get, we get all hung up on things like, I don't know, Stonehenge or the English Civil War or the, the rise and fall of the, the Tudor kings. And you, then if someone says, but what was happening in South America at that point? If we were doing Stonehenge, what were they doing in South America? Or if we had Henry VIII, who did they have in in Indonesia? <laughs> it's, and you think, God, I have no idea. I have no idea. You get so blinkered about your own your own perspective from your own part of the world. And, and I think that idea that, that Trudy planted in my head at that point was part of what became this, this sort of love letter to the wider world. Because it, it was an attempt to satisfy myself that I would have a better understanding of the bigger, all-encompassing picture. And I would say that for, for most of us in the British Isles, those of us who don't have a heritage stemming from the subcontinent, and obviously there are lots of people in, in Britain now who do have that heritage, but you know, for the vast majority who don't have that connection, India, for exa- just as one example of a vast territory, is for most people kind of terra incognita the vaguest idea of what was going on there. And so I, it was a great pleasure when turning my attention to these sort of 100 moments that light up the world, well, to my satisfaction, to reach out and make sure that I was touching as many corners as I possibly could. I've said before and I'll say again, I mean, this is like the sixth moment, moment number six, and there's a lot established already, a lot of what is still familiar. Written words, uh, legal systems, you know, that govern and, and direct and choreograph the activities and behaviour of the many. Bureaucrats, working behind the scenes, keeping things organised, watching what comes in, what goes out. The obsession with money and wealth, the borrowing of it, the lending of it, the spending of it, the hoarding of it. So there's so much already that we've got laid down, that once laid down thousands of years ago, has remained immovable ever since. But at the same time, there are ways of looking at the world that we've taken for granted in our part of the world, perspectives acquired here, that aren't necessarily always helpful. And when I say that, I mean, if you look at a map of the world, the sorts of, I mean, you're the same age as me, more or less, Paul, and you remember the geography class at school, and there was invariably a map of the world, either on the blackboard or pinned to the wall somewhere. And almost without exception, it would have been a version of a projection, as they call it, a map of the world based on that which was first drawn by a cartographer from the Low Countries called Gerardus Mercator. And he made the map, or he, he made the projection in question in 1569. And the maps of the world that most of us in the West are familiar with are from that Mercator projection. We've been handed, as a, as a civilization, really, for the last half a millennium, 
what is frankly a distorted view of the world. And it's, it's given us a, a misplaced or an exaggerated sense of our geographical importance. Mercator really set out to simplify and he set out to create a, an understanding of the shape of the world that would be of use to mariners who had to, after all, find their ways across trackless swatches of ocean. So, for one thing, he tried to apply straight lines across what is a ball, a sphere. So there's an unreality anyway, but it was as though he was trying to take an eyeball or a football and make it appear rectangular in its shape. You know, so it was a it was an awkward undertaking in any event, but he succeeded. You know, he he came up with you know what we call the Mercator projection, and it's been with us for five hundred years. But what he's done, what he did, was implant a distortion of reality. Specifically, Europe and North America were made to appear much larger in relation to, say, South America and the African continent than they are. And in particular, I think perhaps the most, the, the biggest distortion he created was he made Western Europe the centre of the map. And therefore he made Western Europe effectively the centre of the world. We think of the world in relation to us. You know, we talk about the West. I mean, for example, if you're in the Indian subcontinent and you're having to talk about the Middle East, India's further east than the Middle East. It creates distortions that are really unhelpful for people who don't live here. You know, it's bad enough for us because it gives us that distortion, but for other people it leaves them properly left out. And so what's important to bear in mind is that while we're invited to think that Western Europe is bigger than it really is and that it's the centre of the world, it overlooks the fact that, quite frankly, for most of human history, Europe and the West didn't matter. In the scheme of things, the old world was centred around Mesopotamia, you know, the Levant, that territory that we understand now as Iraq and the Holy Land and Iran, those territories of what we know as Mesopotamia, that was this that was the old centre of civilization. Where it first developed, the Ground Zero. Yes, that was that was the centre. And for the longest time, what was going on in the territory that, that we know as Europe didn't matter. Nothing that was happening here was registering or having any significance on the lives of people who were already living in the heart of civilization. And the same is also true of many other parts of the world. So if the old world was centred on Mesopotamia, kings we've already heard of, like Sargon, whose daughter in Heduana, or if she wasn't his daughter, she mattered to him enough that he made her a high priestess of one of the most significant temples of his city at Ur. Sargon... He seems to have known about the existence of India because his scribes wrote about a territory they called Meluha, which historians believe is the Indus Valley, which is that part of the, the subcontinent that you reach first if you're approaching it from the Near East. If you headed out of Mesopotamia and found your way to India, you would come at it through the northeast of the subcontinent. So Sargon of Akkad, the leader of the of the Akkadian Empire, he seems to have had contact with India, for example. But it's hard to tell 
how much that mattered to the people of India. He knew they were there and had contact with them and was, and was perhaps trading with some people in the Indus Valley. But it, it's difficult to tell how much of an impact his civilization had on what was going on in India. So you've got civilization in Mesopotamia, you've got civilization at that time in Egypt, and those civilizations are older than civilizations in the Indian subcontinent. But for centuries, India experienced no meaningful influence from the outside, as far as we can tell. You might say, as it were, from, from time to time, they might have heard some mumbled voices through the walls, but, <laughs> but they never saw them. They didn't know who their neighbours were, far less cared what they were up to. And it's a, it's a feature in many ways of India's, the subcontinent's geographical reality, its geographical circumstances. It was for the longest time physically insulated from the outside. In the northwest of India, looked at from space, the northwest is cut off from the outside world by the Himalaya or by the rest of those great mountain ranges. Okay, so that's, that's discouraging people from coming in, making it very difficult. Towards the northeast, you've got jungle, impenetrable jungle, as far as most travellers for the first millennia were concerned, a boundary not worth attempting to cross. And then if you think of the subcontinent as a kind of inverted triangle, like a shark's tooth, you know, sticking down, hanging down from the rest of Asia, or the ear of an Indian elephant. The two other sides are cut off from the outside world by ocean. And, and for example, no Europeans had the capability to come at the Indian subcontinent via the oceans until the 1600s. It was just out of reach. And so India, the subcontinent, was isolated in every way that mattered. But there were things going on in India that were unto herself, that mattered more than words can say. The subcontinent was a world entire. And its isolation, in many respects, for the longest time, meant that something different developed there. A different understanding of what it meant to be human and alive. An entirely different cosmology evolved there over hundreds and thousands of years to make India different. It's also a different climate. Most of India has a tropical climate, although technically it's not in the tropics. Partly it's created by the fact that that insulation by the mountains in the north uh, means that the deep chill carried by, w by wind, really, and those weather patterns is prevented from touching India. So it's insulated from that, from the great chill of Europe. And then you've got the weather systems coming in from the ocean, bring the monsoon. You know, so India famously experiences the monsoon, so it's got a different set of climatic circumstances. It's a place of enormous variety. You've got two great river systems. In the northeast, you've got the Indus Valley, which is the, the valley of the Indus River. Over on the other side, over in the west, you've got the Ganges, which is another enormous river system, which is dictating and shaping and influencing the lives of the people living there. In between the two deltas, you've basically got desert to some extent. 
once you travel south, uh, the land starts to rise. So you go into the highlands of the Deccan Plateau, and on top of that plateau there's forests. And so the civilization that developed south of the Deccan, or in the Deccan, was cut off from a lot of what was happening further north. The subcontinent is the same landmass as Europe. It's vast, and it has variations within it. But you've got a world entire cut off, insulated from the wider world. And in many ways, you might say that what, what developed there, rather than any idea of a nation, or even several nations, as developed, say, in Europe, what you've got in the subcontinent is the development of a unifying culture. There was a culture before there was a nation. There was a unifying culture, really, instead of a nation. And that culture was of immense power, and it was immensely durable. And for one reason and another, it was demonstrably able to swallow whole and transform anything that came in from the outside. It was like a great digestive system. Any outsiders coming in from the northeast or from the northwest, which was the only way in before the oceans were conquered, was somehow assimilated and made different by India. It could take in people from the outside, and those people were altered forever, assimilated and changed. And that ability really was a defining characteristic of India. And it's so worth bearing in mind that we've been obsessed with the the idea of this pendulum swinging from the Atlantic across to the Near East and back again, and and a flow of people and ideas across that long ribbon of territory. And it's to forget, to overlook the fact that other ideas of great or greater importance were happening elsewhere. And our self-importance was having absolutely no impact on them whatsoever. The moment, this is a story of moments, the moment that matters in the subcontinent is the emergence at a time and a place of a god called Shiva. Shiva is a central figure, perhaps the central figure in the way of life the cosmology, the understanding of what it is to be human and alive that is Hinduism. We tend to think of Hinduism as a religion, which it is, but it's also a way of life. The thinking of Hinduism affects every aspect of life. How to live, why to live, what to eat, how to dress. It dictates everything. It's an incredibly exciting understanding of life and being alive. We look at the world as having been created by a god and we imagine that god as a, you know, as a creator force, almost like a, a carpenter or, or an engineer or a watchmaker, a, a, an entity capable of, of making something of incredible complexity and sophistication and then having created it, sits and watches it and sits in judgment over it like a bearded grandfatherly figure. That's our understanding of it, and it permeates everywhere. I mean, it's not by accident that Jesus Christ is a carpenter or the son of a carpenter. You know, it's, it's that idea of being the son of someone that makes. 
the son of someone that makes order out of chaos. But in Hinduism, there's a concept of the self, Brahma, an immortal entity, and everything is the self. There's nothing but the self. You, me, every blade of grass, every star in the sky, every planet, every animal, everything is the self. It's all one. And in Hinduism, the concept is of everything being a drama that plays out. They talk about the reality that we experience being Brahma or the self playing hide-and-seek with itself. Brahma's everything. Brahma's male and female. Everything. And the idea is that to distract itself, it plays hide-and-seek. It basically goes into a sleep and dreams the reality that we know. So each one of us thinks that we're a separate, independent entity, but we're not. We're just a, an expression. Each one of us is another expression of the self. It's a completely beguiling and fascinating concept. Carl Sagan, the cosmologist, the American cosmologist with the unforgettable voice, he was aware that Hinduism, the Hindu religion, had within it, had nested within it, uniquely an understanding of the great expanse of time. He wrote, The Hindu religion is the only one of the world's great faiths dedicated to the idea that the cosmos itself undergoes an immense, indeed an infinite number of deaths and rebirths. It's the only religion in which the timescales correspond to those of modern scientific cosmology. Its cycles run from our ordinary day and night to a day and night of Brahma, the creator god of Hinduism, 8.64 billion years long, longer than the age of the earth or the sun and about half the time since the Big Bang. And there are much longer timescales still. Something remarkable about Hinduism, and it seems to start in some way, or, it, or that, that way of understanding the world corresponds to a place and a time where there emerged the god called Shiva. And Shiva is this fixed point, this central point in the, in the Hindu faith. It's almost certainly the world's oldest surviving religious cult, the cult of Shiva. Shiva is a Sanskrit word. It was originally not a name, but an adjective, meaning uh, propitious and gracious. It was understood in that way as an adjective long before it came to mean an, an individual, a god. And so India, in some way, kindled the flame of a culture that would survive right down into the present day. It enlightens, it shapes, it orders the lives of millions and billions of people right now, and it has done for the longest time. The culture that grew around it, the culture that formed like a pearl around the grit that is Shiva, was always able to absorb and assimilate while itself remaining unchanged and unchanging. And Hinduism survives in that way to this day. And if you look back, if you go to the the second half of the third millennium BC, from that time on, there were cities in the Indus Valley. Full-blown cities. The structures within were built of burnt brick, and if you kiln fire, clay, mud, 
to a specific temperature, it makes it proof against flood water. Once it reaches a certain consistency, once it becomes burnt brick, it cannot be dissolved again into mud. So once they had that innovation, they were able to create structures, cities in their entirety that were immune from the ever-present danger of flood. And so that would have been at the same time as Stonehenge. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, yes, at the time of people raising the sarsen stones at at Stonehenge, at a time when uh, the beaker culture was across Europe, when, when bodies were being interred with clay beakers and with metalwork of, of copper and bronze, when that culture was across Europe and into the British Isles, people were living in cities in India. <laughs> it, it's called the Harappan culture. One of the, one of the first cities that was identified by archaeologists in the modern era was Harappa in the Indus Valley. There's also Mohenjo-Daro nearby. That's also ascribed to the Harappan culture. So yes, so, so at a time when our when our when the best that we could come up with was Stonehenge, <laughs> there were full there were full blown cities in the Indus. Harappa was was two miles around. Wow! You know, it, it was defined by a wall. Um, it was laid out on a rectangular grid. You know, so a grid plan like like Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, intersecting at right angles, yeah. a rectangular grid plan. Thirty thousand people. There or thereabouts, maybe maybe fewer, maybe more, all living together. Thirty thousand people. I mean, I live in Stirling. There's only about sixty thousand people here in the city of Stirling. But you know, more than two thousand years BC, people were living like that in the in the in the subcontinent. It was an interconnected drainage system, which facilitated baths, bathing inside all the houses. That long ago, which shows that early preoccupation with the early importance of bathing, both for personal hygiene and also for spiritual hygiene. That culture of the significance of bathing was there very, very early on. So you've got Harappa, you've got Mahenjo-Daro, each had a a citadel, you know, a high point for defence to which the people could retreat in a time of crisis. They had trading networks, these cities that, that reached out into wide hinterlands where they were bringing in raw materials from the, from the wider territory. And then the specialists and craftsmen who were in those cities created finished objects from those raw materials. And those were sent back out. From Mahenjo-Daro, there was a canal, a hand-dug canal uh, that stretched a whole mile to a dockyard on the coast at Lothal. So Mahenjo-Daro is a mile from the sea, but they, they open up a canal that connects them to the, to the sea so that, they can, so that they can move stuff up and down the coast. So it's incredible sophistication. They had writing by then, so 2000, more than 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, there was writing in Harappa, in Mohenjo-Daro and other places. They were drawing in materials from Mesopotamia. You know, said at the top that Sargon I, with the relationship to Enheduanna, the first named poet from moment number one, material was coming into the Harappan culture from as far afield as Mesopotamia. And then finished goods were being sent back out. They had cotton fabric. Uh, they were making cotton, and we know that because they were, they were using it to bale the goods, you know, to wrap up other commodities, were wrapped up in cotton and sent out from Lothal and, and other places. 
and it was at Mahenjo-Daro that ar- archaeologists found a piece of steatite, a hard stone, and it was carved with what is believed to be a representation of Shiva. It's called the Pashupati, the Lord of the Animals Seal. It's 2,600 years BC. It's 4,600 years old. Wow. Okay? And it shows a male figure in lotus position. You know, that yoga position with the, you know, with the legs crossed and the ankles up on the thighs either side and surrounded by animals. Deer, elephant, buffalo, all sorts of creatures. And th- this steatite seal would have been pressed into wet clay. So you get a bale of something that's being wrapped up for, for export. And when it's all fastened together, a lump of clay is placed over it and the seal is pressed into it, you know, to, to mark it out, to identify it, where it's come from, its value. And so it's so worth remembering that out of sight and out of mind of our preoccupations, the subcontinent of India had cradled a flowering of its own, a culture of its own, an understanding of the universe of its own, and Shiva was there from the beginning. In fact, there's there's really no way to know how old Shiva was by the time the cities of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro were built. At a time even before those cities, there would appear to have been faith in a transcendent presence, and Shiva was understood as a creator of life and also a creator of havoc, a beginning and an end, an alpha and an omega. He was able to start the world and he was able to finish the world in an endless cycle that repeated. Round and round and round the wheel turns, birth and death. And Shiva is the lord of destruction, the lord of reproduction. Eventually in the pantheon, I suppose, he's, he's joined by a wife, that's the goddess Parvati, They have their sons Ganesh and uh, Kartikeya. But Shiva is the oldest. Shiva is the start of it. And as I say, may have been ancient by the time of the cities. In uh, Madhya Pradesh, right at the centre of India, there are rock shelters, caves, which are known to have been occupied by one form of humanity or another as long ago as 100,000 years. They're of soft sandstone, dotted all around, are etched, all manner of uh, illustrations, and there are also painted figures of people and animals. And the oldest of those, the oldest of those representations are at least 10,000 years old. And in among them, those 10,000 year old figures, there's a male figure holding a trident, you know, a three-pronged fork, and he's dancing. He's dancing across the stone and he has been interpreted as an early image of Shiva or of the transcendent presence that became Shiva. So there we are, it's it's moment number six and it's so important as early as possible to pay attention to the whole place. You know, this is a story of the world and archaeologists, paleontologists, there's an understanding that our... Our species, Homo sapiens, has one source and one source only, and it's Africa. That we come out of Africa tens of thousands of years ago. But the story of civilization is different. The species comes from one place, as far as our present understanding or, or the consensus of present understanding has it. But civilization is different. It's like individual flames kindled in different places at different times. 
different groups of people at different times and for different reasons established civilization all on their own, not necessarily requiring outside help to do it. And in India, as in Asia, civilization emerged spontaneously. It wasn't that outsiders brought civilization to India. You know, civilization began in and of itself in India without the need of external inspiration. And central to that from the very beginning was and is the religion of Hinduism. And Hinduism is an encircling net. I mean, you talk about the Mercator projection and you imagine the lines, the, the, the longitude and latitude, the interconnecting grid laid over the surface of the earth, which makes it easier to understand. Well, Hinduism is a net, a net of interconnections that lies on top of India that lies on top of the subcontinent. And at its centre, the place from which it began, the spider at the heart of the web from which everything else came is Shiva. Kingdoms and powerful city-states rising and falling. Emigrants, refugees and wanderers. 3,800 years ago, Mesopotamia and Egypt were in flux. With new technology at their disposal, the Hyksos rode into the centre of Egyptian power. A mysterious people who ruled for centuries, but haven't left a trace of their existence behind. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Arch and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.